You're listening to a podcast by the Leadership Ministry Team at Texas Methodist Foundation. TMF's Leadership Ministry connects diverse, high-capacity leaders in conversations and environments that create a network of courage, learning, and innovation in order to help the church lean into its God-appointed mission. For more information, visit tmf-fdn.org. The first reservoir dug on the farm where I live is surrounded by oak and mesquite trees and provides water both to our cattle and to the native wildlife. When I look out from my study window and see the water, I'm reminded how the reservoir has sustained our farm for nearly a century. In difficult seasons riddled with drought, the reservoir has been a saving grace for every living thing. The reservoir expands the resilience of the land to sustain life until a new normal reveals itself. This reservoir is an apt metaphor for this disordered time. We need substantial reservoirs of resilience so that in drinking deeply from those waters, this season might be not only a time of loss, but also a time of spiritual deepening and new life. In another period of profound change, the Apostle Paul writes, all creation is groaning as if in childbirth. Even as we groan and grieve, people of faith intuitively sense that we also inhabit a pregnant season ripe with amazing possibilities and new birth. I believe that God has already provided everything we need, deep reservoirs of hope, clarity of purpose, courage. The Holy One is inviting us to drink deeply from these reservoirs of the Spirit and then join hands with one another in repairing and creating God's new creation. This podcast is for people of faith who, despite the difficulties of the moment, continue to build toward the world that God imagines by drawing on the reservoirs that God has so generously provided for us. Welcome to Reservoirs of Resilience. I'm Lisa Greenwood, Vice President of Leadership Ministry at TMF. You just heard Bishop Janice Huey reading from her recent publication entitled Reservoirs of Resilience, which inspired this podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us for this fifth episode of our six episode series. Just a note, if you're joining us for the first time, there are three parts to the episode. First, we'll hear an excerpt from Bishop Huey's writing on resilience. Then we'll have an in-depth conversation about the topic with our guests. And finally, we'll end the episode with key takeaways from the conversation. Our topic for this episode is resilience in the church. And our guests are Aaron Hawkins, Executive Director of Connectional Ministries for the California Pacific Annual Conference, and Bishop Cynthia Harvey, Bishop of the United Methodist Church in Louisiana and President of the Council of Bishops. You'll notice that this is one of our longer episodes. The content was so rich with these two dynamic leaders that we didn't want you to miss a minute of the conversation, so we didn't cut much. 
They discuss the current state of the church, what resilience looks like for the church, and what changes they're hoping to see in the denomination. I'm really grateful for their openness and their willingness to share with us. And if you're like me, your own reservoir of resilience will be a bit more full of grace by the end of the episode. Let's begin with Bishop Huey's writing to tee up our topic for today. For some years now, the United Methodist Church has experienced a tough season characterized by uncertainty, rapid change, and disturbance. Distrust of institutions, polarization, and volatile discourse have become the new normal in the culture. Declining congregations, clashes over human sexuality, and threats of division inhabit our religious conversation alongside an exciting surge in missional innovation, especially among the millennial generation. All these realities are part of the new normal in the United Methodist Church. Some leaders respond to this season with discouragement and distress. Others see it as a fresh opportunity for learning and a renewed focus on the mission of God. Father Richard Rohr writes, transformation more often happens not when something new begins, but when something old falls apart. The pain of something old falling apart, the disruption, the chaos, invites the soul to a deeper level. It invites and sometimes forces the soul to a new place because the old place is not working. I believe that we are experiencing just such a time in the United Methodist Church. The reality of diminishing congregations and the possibility of division within the denomination disturbs and grieves both pastors and laity. We do not want to be here. Yet, this experience of loss and uncertainty may force us to listen more carefully to God's desire for the world, and to respond to Christ's call with fresh forms of faithfulness and vitality. The Apostle Paul describes our unwelcome situation this way. It is when I am weak that I am strong. Along with purpose and courage, resilience is one of the leverage issues on which institutions and congregations will live or die into the future. What is needed to enlarge the capacity of United Methodist pastors, congregations, annual conferences, and the denomination to become more resilient? Joining us in conversation about resilience for the church is Bishop Cynthia Fierro Harvey and Aaron Hawkins. Bishop Harvey is the Bishop of the United Methodist Church in Louisiana. In addition to this role, she currently serves as the president of the Council of Bishops. She also serves on the board of trustees for Centenary College and on the executive board of Perkins School of Theology. Just prior to her election as a bishop in 2012, Bishop Harvey served as Deputy General Secretary for the United Methodist Committee on Relief, UMCOR. She is a leader who listens and pays attention. 
She is always learning new things and challenges others to do the same thing. And these qualities are essential to lead effectively in this climate. Erin Hawkins is the Executive Director of Connectional Ministries for the California Pacific Annual Conference. After having served as the General Secretary of the General Commission on Religion and Race since 2007, the agency is charged with leading the United Methodist Church's efforts to be fully inclusive of the participation of racial ethnic persons in its life and work, and with challenging the church and society when racism rears its destructive head. As General Secretary, Aaron led the restructuring of the agency and the development of its current ministry model of vital conversations, intercultural competency, and institutional equity. She is no stranger to institutional change or the accompanying resistance. Welcome, Bishop and Aaron. We are so glad you all are here. Thank you for joining us. So let's start with one of my favorite places to start, the current reality. <laughs> <laughs> if we're going to talk about resilience in the church, it's helpful to start with what challenges the church is facing right now. Mm -hmm. What do you see when you look at the church today? I think about what we're facing today is sort of this compounding effect, if you will. We hit the COVID wall, if you will. I think my last trip was early March. I spent my life on the road. Uh, our churches had to pivot from in-person worship to online worship in a, probably about a, a dime, really. In three days' time, they turned into, you know, tele-evangelists. Uh, then we had, you know, we thought this would be over soon, and it was not over, and we had, a, you know, how many iterations of that have we been through where they learned how to use the, the live button on their Facebook, you know, on their phone to producing worship, literally, like producing worship. Then you had all the, the racial unrest. In that tied up was all the economic and political and then the stretch on our health systems. And, and then in my context, we had three hurricanes. So it's not like any one of those things would have been enough, right? To, to have all of those kind of pile on top of each other is this compounding effect that, and I think that's where we are. And, you know, so you deal with sort of the reality. We had a hurricane, people are sick, people are dying. You have a distrust of our institution, of our democratic system, of our political system. And, you know, yes, perfect storm, whatever you want to call that. But I think we find ourselves in that place of we're weary, uh, we don't know what to do next, uh, we've exhausted sort of all my capacity to create something new, and yet yeah. the times are still calling for that. So I, mean, I think, uh, you know, I just keep thinking of the reality that we find ourselves in, yet we have this opening of I feel like we have more permission than ever before to try some new stuff, right? You know, everybody's having to do things new. So why not? Uh, so, you know, I, but it's exhausting. It is an exhausting place to find yourself recreating yourself every single day is what it feels like right now. I mean, that's, that is my daily bread and we're all in it. You know, you, any disaster in my lifetime, somebody was not in it. Right. So, you know, right. Katrina people could go to North Carolina after Katrina. 
when an entire nation is an entire world is in this place, there's no place to go. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Aaron, what are you seeing? So, you know, just building on what Bishop Harvey said, it, it brought to my mind um, 2008. And there were a little, a small group of leaders in the church who were talking about the trends that were uh, facing the church and, and the, the signals that something was coming, something big was coming. And I was a part of some conversations that happened at that time. There were some bishops and a couple of general secretaries. I don't think any of the us, any of the ones that were in that conversation are still general secretaries today. But what do, what do we do with that? And um, so the results of that was a small task force that was brought together to study, you know, what, what the realities are. And it produced a report called the call to action. Now that is like right. now, <laughs> that report is like, no, whenever you bring it up, people say, no, no, no. But I wanna, I wanna just kind of harken back to that because I think what people think about is the operational report that came as a result of the findings. The, there, there were two reports essentially. So, the, so not the operational report, we're not gonna talk about that, but <laughs> Um, the actual call to action, there were lots of things in it, but there are two things that rarely get discussed when we kind of talk about what's happened. And that was the two major findings of the, of, of the report, which is that the crises that are confronting the church are one, a pervasive lack of trust and the crisis of irrelevant. Right. Those two major findings. And then there was all of this stuff around what we could do with structure and, you know, ways of working and that kind of to the operational, the certainty, the parts that kind of stroked our ability to believe that we could control the uncontrollable mm -hmm. <laughs> and could through organizational and institutional tweaks deal with the levels of uncertainty that had already begun to show themselves in the church and in the world, um, I think was kind of where we missed the mark on that. But the compounding, the tipping point that we're at now is fueled by that those two dynamics that are kind of running beneath the, the surface of all of this. You know, what makes it difficult to resolve a pandemic and racial injustice is a pervasive lack of trust yeah. and our irrelevant frames for assessing the times that we're in. And so I think that's, that's so that continued, um, you know, that, that continued dynamic in the church, which is only accelerated over time, is part of why we are where we are. And on the other side of that, and the you know the the exhaustion that individuals are feeling is part of this um, sense of being in survival mm -hmm. mode. Mm -hmm. You know when you're assaulted, the senses are assaulted. The the ways of knowing and being are assaulted time over time over time. The things that we once knew now no longer apply, and we hope that those things will go back to a place where we recognize them again. But we all know that they probably won't. And that is an assault on the senses as well. And so we go into this um, this survival mode 
where we're making it through. We're doing the best we can with what we have. And that produces impacts on the body, whether that's my personal body or our collective body. The body of Christ is actually kind of dealing with this. What does it mean for us to be uh, acting out of these survival instincts rather, you know, out of the the responsiveness, the reflectiveness uh, and responsiveness to the times that we're living. So that's what I see. You two have done a wonderful job of just laying out current reality and this um, sense of, you know, focusing on survival, uh, that just getting by, that um, so many of, so many leaders feel. about resilience, I mean, one of the definitions of resilience is the capacity to absorb change while retaining integrity and purpose. So given all that you laid out here, the challenges that the church is facing, what actions do you think that leaders might take? And I'm here talking congregations and the and, and leaders also at the denominational level in helping lead toward a resilient church. One of the things that that I think about, and especially where I am, um, because I I really see the definition of resilience lived its you know living itself out every day, and particularly in South Louisiana, all of Louisiana, really defiance. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about um, you, you. Some some people can do it, some people can't, right? You know, you you really think about who's resilient and who's not resilient. There are days that um, you know I just want to pull the covers over my head and say, "Not today, not today," and and that's perfectly fine. You know, I tell our pastors, it is perfectly fine for you today to pull the covers over your head and say, "Not today, not today." But those who you know, can we can we defy? Are we defiant enough? People of joy, um, we you know we just uh, we're going to date this um, this podcast when I say we just had uh, Advent uh, this Sunday of Advent, third Sunday of Advent of joy, and joy to me is defying. Uh, it's defiant, and and so could resilience be a way of defiance and of saying yeah today. Yeah, bring it on. Now you talk about the work of a person in this time is prophetic work, prophetic imagination to borrow from Brueggemann. Uh, and maybe that's what it's mm. going to take in this period of time is sort of that prophetic imagination, because this isn't this isn't like a normal uh, human thing I can just call up. Right. Uh, okay. It's going to take something more than that. Holy Spirit kind of stuff. Yeah. When I think of resilience. You know, I, I, I'm working a lot with images and symbols these days because I feel like we're in a space where we're being called to think through from dif- different, you know, capacities. So the the opposite of, of image of resiliency that comes up for me is rigidity. Mm-hmm. And so when I kind of begin to feel into, you know, what does, what is it? How am I, you know, how are we when we're rigid, fixed, holding, grasping, you know, those are some of the words that come to mind. And so for me, resilience has meant as, you know, when I get a frame around what it is not, (laughs) Mm -hmm. then what it becomes for me is letting go. 
and surrender, especially the things that are that feel out of my control, the things that feel like I can't, you know, that um, I can't possibly know, I don't have an inform- enough information, you know, those sorts of things. So there is a part of the flexibility of resilience that has to come through our willingness to release, to let go of the things that keep us stuck. Even though there's there's a lot of fear that comes up with that, because one of the ways in which we attempt to control our reality is by holding on to these fixed ways of belief and knowing, some of which are central, but many of more than we probably have the courage to admit are, are you know, can really be released. So that there can be this um, expansiveness, this this flow, this this sense of movement and anti-rigidity that's necessary for for resilience. The other piece of it that I think is really connected to what um, Bishop Kira Harvey talked about uh, um, with re- with. Resistance, defiance connects to this piece around integrity, which is, you know, feeling the feeling of being whole and complete within oneself, within the body, right? So when I am whole, I'm clear. You know, I'm grounded, mm-hmm. I'm rooted, I'm purposeful, I'm I am able to see and embrace what is essential for the the continuance of that feeling of wholeness. And when you have that groundedness, you know, in the fact that, you know, your life as a leader and what you're leading people toward is the rediscovery of their own wholeness. First you, then, you know, as you can build that capacity, it extends that invitation, that opportunity to other people. The sense of integrity that comes with that helps to, it becomes the roots for which defiance and resistance can can move forward in a meaningful way. Um, because so many of our folks who are wanting to do the new thing or who are resisting, let's say, for example, injustice, do it without roots, without a sense of their, you know, it's a response to the other rather than an expression of wholeness, expression of integrity. And so those two things kind of combine mm-hmm. this ability to release, to let go, of what's fixed and that prevents um, us from seeing the, the the larger opportunities or the callings that are are still coming forth that God is still issuing at this time, and then being able to to anchor those in a sense of integrity and wholeness about who you are, what you're here to do, that then gives you the actions that can't just be thought up but are lived as an expression of discipleship, especially in times where there's Mm -hmm. lots of uncertainty. Gosh, that is so good. So good. Both of you just really, I I appreciate how grounded it is in, in who we are, right? As children of God, as beloved, and um, that wholeness. And then out of that, we move into that kind of defiance that says the world doesn't have to define us. 
Ah, I just love hearing both of you talk about the qualities of resilient leaders. And, and truthfully, I have admired both of you for so long. And you're both remarkable, resilient leaders uh, in your own right, in the denomination. We're so fortunate to have had your, uh, and to have now your leadership in the denomination. So I, I'm particularly interested in hearing what you think resilience look like. Like we've talked about it for individual leaders I'm interested in y'all kind of uh, spending a little time painting a picture for what it looks like in a denomination, right? What is res- what does a resilient church look like? You know, just also you know, as Aaron was uh, talking, I always say, you know, the the gospel according to Elsa from Princeton. <laughs> you know, let it go. And there's so much about who we are and what we do. Uh, that is so rigid. I, I wonder how we can free one another to do what God has called us to do. I mean, there's nothing that frustrates me more than being in a conversation where somebody will say, well, we can't do that, and we can't do this, and the discipline says this, and 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 I, you know, I do my best to stay in bounds here, but, you know, how how do I press the boundary here to free us to be all that God is calling us to be and to do. So I think about, you know, in my own personal life, when I've held on to something so tight and I get frozen, things don't work so well. Uh, And it's not until I really truly let it go and I'm freed of that. Um, So how do we as a church, as leaders, um, create an environment, a container, <laughs> if you will, that is freeing. I, I have a dear friend that always talks about, you know, what the container can hold. And one day I just got really mad at him. And I said, you know, my container can't hold every, I don't have a container big enough to hold all of this stuff. And so I need, I, I need to break this container. I, I don't, I'm bound to this container right now. And rather than making it bigger, uh, what I'd really like to do is get rid of some of the stuff that's in here. And so, you know, I just, you know, I, th- I think a lot about that. I think a lot about how, how do we free a, a church, an institution to do and be what I really believe is the gospel. Uh, and we, and I realize institution, we need institution because that's what brings order to our work. I, I recognize that. But uh, how do we free one another and free the, free us individually, free us as a church to really go out into the world, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, you know, could have stayed here, but that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says go out there. And, uh, you know, we kind of like it here in our little world. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that is that is what goes through my head a lot, especially right now. Bishop, you talked about freedom. You know, how do we free one another and, you know, kind of free up the energy, the imaginative energy, the passionate energy, the, you know, the servant energy to, to be transformative in the world. It, you know, it really brings me back to kind of one of the core elements of Methodism, and that is the idea of the connection. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, I think that a resilient church is authentically connectional. Now, what I think hangs us up is that 
our conception of what it means to be connectional is not resilient. It's rigid. (laughs) (laughs) And so I want to just kind of resurface. I feel like there's, there is an opportunity for us to reclaim uh, that idea, the you know that that brilliance that is uniquely a part of the Methodist movement around connection, the interdependence between things, and probably the experiment of resilience of becoming a resilient church is how do we redefine it mm. for especially in times of uncertainty. So we think systemically because we're a large institution and our systems thinking has us uh, reduce and separate so that we can better analyze and organize and change the parts. And I'm increasingly um, convinced that what will help to transform us is becoming masters not of the parts, but of the relationship between the parts. Mm-hmm. You know, when we become really good, what will make us authentically connectional is that we will have become masterful at, uh, uh, at engaging the relational field, our relationship with each other, our relationship with our communities. Like that is the place of attention. And if we can build connection around how we tend to the relational field, the things that are happening in between the parts of the system, as much as we pay attention to the individual parts, then I think we'll get a different kind of outcome. I also want to say that so much of our assessment and our engagement about the future of the church is framed in economic terms. So even what we do with connect, even when we talk about the, how the connection or connectionalism operates, the, the examples that we use to show the connection at work always have some sort of economic element to them. So that's how it lives for us, because that's the way we language it. And so even the things about what we need to let go of in the future are always expressed in economic terms. So I'm 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 thinking like maybe that's one of the things that we we need to let go because part of it is it's a lever that we can manipulate. And if we can if we think if we just can tinker with it, we can eke out a few more mm-hmm. years of viability as a system. What if we just let mm-hmm. that go? What if we just let that go and said, as the economic realities in an uncertain time play out the way that they will play out, let's focus on the relational field. Let's do something about this pervasive lack of trust and what and how we might engage that in a way that gives us a new church, that gives us an authentic Mm -hmm. connection. Let's talk about where this, this crisis of irrelevance is really showing up and what is beneath that. And let's spend whatever resources we have toward the attention of that, which doesn't necessarily mean, you know, we've got to, we have to manage, certainly, as as Bishop Harvey said, we've got to manage. I think maybe the, we can, we can work with the equation of attention that we put around some of these things. So I think that a denomination that is resilient is one, in summary, (laughs) (laughs) that, uh, that, um, 
is one that we're, where we're really getting back to the root of, of you know, what does it, um, as we experience change, as we see things that used to be um, a, a fixture in the church no longer um, existing, the, there are things that are dying in our church. Everything that lives dies eventually. And so there are elements of who we've been and how we've operated that are passing away. And um, we can tend to that passing in a way that is more distinctly relational, that gives us greater flexibility. That Are there things that we can compost so that there are new realities, mm-hmm. um, that are new possibilities, that help us to bring healing in the face of historical harm? You know, all of these things, I think, are possible when we do kind of adapt as a denomination, this this ability to to kind of let things go, let go of some of the rigidity, stop tinkering with the parts, and start focusing on how we might be more profoundly related to the parts, even when they're not connected in the ways that they once were. You know, Aaron, I, um, if I could just say that one of the things I keep going back to, and, and I know my team is probably um, is getting sick of me referring back to the theological task, which if, there's, if I have a favorite part of the book of discipline, that is my favorite part. But that line that says that we are a vital web of interactive relationships. Right. To me, that's that in between stuff that, you know, I, uh, I can't live without some connection to you and, and vice versa, that we are interconnected at the very depth of who we are. You know, I, I just, I, I've gone back to that more than, you know, I ever have in my ministry, but that vital web of interactive relationships uh, that is that is who we say we are. And I guess for me personally, I mean, that is kind of who, I mean, I just believe in that interconnectedness. But, um, and you can't, you can't cut any part of that off without some pain. Aaron, you've spent a good part of your career engaging United Methodist in anti-racism work. What are the changes you're hoping to see? And how have you personally stayed resilient in leading through institutional change? Wow. So that is, that's a, <laughs> that's an interesting, that's a loaded question. <laughs> so what am I hoping to see um, in the church? You know, I'm really of, of two, two minds of this, especially in light of the conversation that we are having, we've been having so far. Um, you know, one of the things that I would, I would like to see the church do is to live out uh, the, you know, to live out our faith, to live out the, the mandates of the gospel, love God, love your neighbor. I mean, it could be really simple. <laughs> Um, and yet it's not right. It, it is, um, it, it is complex. So, you know, my hope would be we can delve more deeply into the ways in which racism lives in the systemic life of the church. You know, we have done some symbolic, important symbolic work around racism, around historical harms, and but it, we haven't changed how we live together. We haven't changed the way in which we use the 
the elements of organizational life toward accomplishing some goals. So let me give you an example. One of the ways I would say systemically, the the primary way systemically that we have in the church addressed issues of race and diversity is through representation. If we can get one more person on a committee, elect them a bishop, Um, appoint them to a church, (laughs) then that in and of itself is an indicator that we've done um, better. And it has to a limited extent. Mm -hmm. So in a time where change and complexity are realities that become more and more significant in the life of the church and the life of institutions, principles like representation no longer are sufficient to bringing the type of change that so there's got to be additional things. And there are ways in which we we wield the representational tool that also support not having to be different. You know, so like when you choose to say, let's add, you know, someone to a particular committee and then we're done, then it is essentially you use representation to not do the work of anti-racism. It becomes an, a, a, a mechanism of avoidance. So I would like to see in the church, I would like for us to think more deeply about like, how do we, how do we reproduce inequitable outcomes in the church? How, how is our decision-making processes? How are our mental models around how do we engage the other? Our thoughts um, even about the role of the local church, you know, how do all of the ways we think about the, the elements of who we are as the body of Christ, how do those things perpetuate inequity, oppression for women, for people of color, for LGBTQ people? You know, there's a whole long list of, of, of folks that we can just rethink, like, how, do, how is our way of life actually contributing to the problems that we are facing. And I think if we can get to, you know, just a real nitty gritty, because we put so much time and effort into the more emotional parts of anti-racism, we put a lot of time into the performative aspects, the need for us to listen, all important. And there are some tangible, I, I would say, I would like to see more Uh, time and attention on the actual tangible ways in which the church does church and um, thinking about that in in new ways. Wow, Erin, I love hearing you talk about this and I'm so grateful we have your voice in the mix. I am so grateful. I would love to hear how you stay resilient. So, you know, this is, uh, I think this is a really important question as well, because um, especially for leaders of color in the church, um, it's, you know, in our church, in the United Methodist Church, where um, we are minority and minoritized you know, meaning that, you know, we are in the church. That's the context that I'm talking about. Um, Our numbers, you know, are not in the, you know, the dominant pool. And there is a sense of otherness Mm. 
that is a part of being in an institution where the culture and the, you know, the history has all been driven by whiteness and by values that are derived of our our connection to Europe, you know, historically, you know, all of this becomes a part of the, you know, the ethos and the identity of the church. And then if you come from cultures that are outside of that paradigm, that are not, you know, driven by that, or that are that cultures that have values and ways that are counter to that of the institution, then there is definitely this sense of othering. So in that way, um, there is a need for resilience for leaders of color in in the church because there is the... W.B. Du Bois talks about the double consciousness. You know, how do you live simultaneously as a, a person who can navigate the, the dominant culture, but one who also retains and holds as part of your identity, your, you know, mother culture, whatever that may be. And the, the dance between those two things is sometimes sometimes violent it is it is it is unnerving it is wearying and so the need to be resilient in the face of that is essential um because the, there are untold number of leaders of color who have been quote unquote taken out by the system because they for whatever reasons you know they weren't able to 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 find their way through that maze or the maze cut them off altogether so i just wanted to set a context for like why i see this as essential and to say to everyone but to white people and to people of color who are listening to this the need for people of color people who are othered in any kind of way to engage in that kind of self-care and to build your internal resilience is an act of resistance. It is the act of defiance. It is one of the most important acts of defiance in the face of oppression and othering that we can wield is to take care of ourselves. And so that really brings me back to where we started, which is how do I, 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 I'm constantly giving attention to how I build a sense of wholeness within myself, which means rest, which means spiritual disciplines, which means boundaries, (laughs) which means withdrawing my consent from things that are not of interest to me, which has been something that's really hard because, and I can, I think that this is something that is shared by all leaders, but it becomes compounded when you have these othering identities, these othered identities as well, is the need that somehow you are obligated as a, as a way of surviving to care about what everybody else cares about, to be a part of all the conversations that are not relevant to you or to what you care most deeply about for fear of being labeled, you know, in, in some sort of way. And so I am, I, for the sake of my own wholeness and the sake of my own 
conservation of energy that I want to direct toward my my discipleship, toward you know loving God and loving neighbor, is that I've got to withdraw my consent from those things that do not serve me, that do not bring me joy, that do not allow me to make my authentic voice heard, and to be willing to accept the consequences of that because my wholeness is more important than my acceptability in systems that are not designed for me. So I'm here because this is where I am. Like God placed me here. I was born and raised in the United Methodist Church. So obviously, because I'm here and because I still have very much a heart for the church, I'm going to stay in it. But not everybody does. Sometimes the withdrawing of consent means that we need to release people's obligation to be in places that don't nourish them. So I want to just say to folks who feel like they need to go because it is the way that they can preserve and to serve better then do it, (laughs) you know, do it. Not from a sense of we don't need you, but we love you so much that, you know, that we recognize that this is not a place where um, where God can can most use you. And for those who choose to stay in this, to say that your your honoring of self, which we you know sometimes can label as selfishness or lack of willingness to serve, is something that you have to distinguish for yourself. But you know, we don't need any more marginalized people who've lost their lives because of racism and sexism and and homophobia we've got we have too we have too much blood on our hands and so at some point you know my responsibility for my wholeness is an act of leadership in the church and so i've said more probably on this than i needed to but this is so essential because this is part of us tending to the relational field that will lead us into a different kind of church yeah wow wow just so good aaron so powerful thank you so much and i i feel like so much of your heart and your own wholeness is in that response like you're 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 saying it, but it's coming out of this deep place within you. I, I'm so grateful for you. Bishop, I I, uh, I want to turn to you and just say, I, like, I know you have this vantage point as president of the Council of Bishops right now. And, and so what are the changes you're hoping to see? Mm-hmm. And, and really, I want to ask you the same question we've asked Aaron. As you lead through this time, uh, what are you doing to help nurture your own resilience? You know, I... It sounds so basic. I just hope to see us live out our baptismal vows. Um, You know, long before we get to our ordination and consecration vows as bishops of the church, um, can we live out our baptismal vows? And I think, too, as a a council of bishops, if I can just go there for a minute— can can, going back to what I said earlier, can we lead our people to be free, Hmm. uh, not confined? And um, I, I think that when when I, you know, I I'm I'm usually a glass half full kind of a person, and then the, but there are days where it's like oh my god I don't this I don't I don't really know where to go with this today. Right now we we have an opportunity. I referred to this earlier. This whole thing's been turned upside down. Our resources are all out of whack. Where we you know how we align our 
fiscal and physical resources are all out of alignment. You know, forever we work towards Sunday morning in our buildings, and and now that's not relevant. You know, we've learned that the church is really not about the buildings. We've said that, we've sung the little song in Sunday school, but we're now living that each and every day. So, I, you know, I would love for us to see how we can realign our resources with with what's relevant to us today, and that's going to mean turning this thing on its you know upside down and. You know, the, the people that want to go back to how it was or normal, I love that, what is her name, um, the, the spoken word artist that talks about, you know, we want to go back to normal. Do you want to go back to that? Do you want to go back to greed and, and you know, all of that stuff? You know, that's not what we need to do. And so I have this vision of, you know, a, a, a new church um, that is, um, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't bind itself by its own self, if that makes sense. I mean, I think we bind ourselves here. And so how do we loosen some of those things so that we can truly, freely be people who love God and love neighbor? You, you think about in my, my own Hispanic culture, and, and I'll just talk about a little bit, Aaron talked about otherness. I'll never forget one of my first meetings in an organization as a bishop. And um, when it asked for ethnicity, it was two boxes, three boxes, I guess. It was black, white, other. Mm. I had to check the other box. Mm. And I, I mean, I I sat in this boardroom with tears in my eyes because I'm thinking, you know, I, I just checked a box that says I'm other. What the heck is other here? And so I, I you know, I come at all of this out of that's who I I, I am. You know, in, in my culture, fiesta is a sign of resistance, right? Uh, it is, you know, defiance. Um, or uh, in Louisiana, it's called a second line. You know, you second line at a funeral, mm-hmm. you know, things are never so bad that you don't fiet- have a fiesta and that you don't second line. That's mm-hmm. defiance to me. To me, that's resistance. That's that is how I'm, I'm baked that way. You know, that's that is it's baked into me. So um, I just. You know, I, every once in a while, God and I have to have a conversation because it's like, I'm doing a new thing. Can you not perceive it? Nope. No, not today. Can't see it yet. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I just, I, I long so much for, and I just keep using the word freeing uh, of our, of who we are, our resources. Uh, and bet right now, I would love to see us do a total realignment of where we invest ourselves. How are we using our time and our money and our resources to do a good and joyful thing? What do I hope to see? And I, uh, this is a question that I wake up with um, every day. You know, what do I hope to see? And I, I would, you know, I still would say, how do how do we, in fact, be? what I believe God has called us to be. And that is people of love that love our neighbor 
um, that live up to our baptismal vows as clergy, that can live up to our the covenant vows that we accepted at our ordination for bishops, the vows we took at our consecration. And basically, how do we go about this work and do no harm and stop harming one another? And if we could do that, man, you know, it, it would be a great day, right? But to me, it, it, it's not, it's complicated, but it's not complicated at all. It's pretty simple. It is pretty simple. We've just made it much more complex, much more complicated, uh, I think, just by being the human beings that we are in all of this. Thank you. Thank you. So the last thing we're asking all our guests to do is to complete these three sentences. It's sort of rapid fire round. So just first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? So resilience is? Fullness. Hard. So when I think of resilience, I think of? Janice Huey. Um, I think of a weave, of a weave, like a cloth that with strands that are weaved, web, weaved together. <laughs> <laughs> Great. If you want to cultivate resilience. Be willing to take a risk. To thine own self be true. Mm. You two are awesome. I have been inspired and moved and challenged. Really, thanks be to God for both of you and your ministry and your witness. I'm grateful. Thank you. As we end this episode on resilience in the institution, I am really curious, Bishop, what your reflections and takeaways are from our conversation today. Um, there is so much in in these this conversation between these two leaders, and just and so much thoughtfulness. And there's lots we can talk about here. But one of the one of my takeaways that is both of them in each in their own way identify the opposite of resilience and talk about what's the opposite of resilience. And it is some form of rigidity. Right. It is some for and so resilience then involves a flexibility which requires a letting go, a surrender. It has to do with integrity, wholeness, a clarity um, about purpose. And these, these actions are led by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit, which brought me to think about holiness and as a part of wholeness, that wholeness is um, it tends to focus on our humanity. Holiness is our movement toward God, and resilience draws us closer to the divine. Oh, that's so good. And I, it makes me uh, think about what Bishop Harvey was talking about when in the same conversation about you know rigidity as the opposite of resilience. And she asked the question, how do we create an environment that is freeing for the institution and to live the gospel, right? To be the church to the ends of the earth. And it, it reminded me of a conversation we had in a previous episode um, of the podcast with Stephen Lewis when he talked about asking the question, is this institution built for flourishing? And it makes me think, what if we asked that of our congregations, of our you know, families, of our institution of the church? Are we built for flourishing? Are, are we helping people be 
whole and and resilient and and leaning into the divine. Are we doing that with our institutions? I I appreciate that very much. It's what you're calling for there, Lisa, is prophetic work. It it, it is the work of the prophet. It's the work of imagination and holy imagination um, to help lead us and our institutions to be flourishing, to be filled um, with goodness, and um, to be filled with love. So one other thing that I that I want to bring up is Aaron talked about how in the midst of all that's going on right now, we're as in, as individuals, as leaders, we're acting out of our survival instincts. Mm-hmm. And that when we do that, it takes its toll on a body, on our bodies. And and so she says, you know, she's challenging us to move out of, you know, survival instinct and, and into more reflective, intentional space. But it makes me think if that's happening to us as individuals, our individual bodies, can that not also happen to like the body of Christ? And the, a congregation or even an institution of the, of the body of Christ act out of survival instincts? And, and does that not take its toll on the body, on the collective, on the congregation? And are we not all invited into more reflective and intentional space, especially right now? Um, and so I, I just think about that element of resilience, that we are more resilient when we can get out of our survival instincts and more into more reflective and intentional space. I mean, that's so important. And it moves us into connection, into relationship, in, and, and helps us create the sacred space where something new can emerge. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks you all for listening. We hope this podcast has sparked an idea or a question in you so that so that you can have a conversation with a friend or with your team. And and if you have received some nourishment from listening today, we hope you will share it with a friend and and even leave us a review. Until next time, may you drink deeply from the reservoirs of hope, of purpose, and courage. Reservoirs of Resilience is a production of TMF's Leadership Ministry with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. The beautiful music in our episode is from Billy Crockett. Listen to more Billy's music on YouTube and on billycrockett.com. Make sure to view our show notes and website for more information about all of our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at TMF's Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.